The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 1, verses 45 through 51. John chapter 1, verses 45 through 51, and I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 43 uh, for uh, context. We read, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We are in a section of the Gospel of John which describes how Jesus began calling disciples to follow him. And you might have noticed the repetition of the word found in these verses, perhaps especially as we pointed it out last week in the sermon. This word found shapes the action in this portion of John's Gospel. In verse 41, we read that Andrew found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And then in verse 45, we read that Philip found Nathanael, saying, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. We also need to understand, loved ones, that through all these means of of Jesus finding his disciples and then the disciples going and telling about Christ uh, to those that they know. Through all of these means, it was really Jesus who was finding his disciples. He is the good shepherd who came to seek out his sheep and to save them. As he later explained to these men, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John chapter 15, verse 16. As we consider our passage this morning, I want us to consider first in uh, the explanation we see that Philip gave to Nathanael, I want us to first consider the prophecies uh, regarding uh, Jesus' coming. We see in verse 45 that Philip, after he had met Jesus, he went and found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We see that Philip's statement reveals the fact that the Old Testament is full with uh, prophecies about the Messiah whom God would send to redeem his people. There was this expectation, especially in the first century, and that expectation was based on the scriptures, the scriptures that we know as the Old Testament. The expectation was based on, on how those scriptures were interpreted and understood. 
about speaking about one who was to come, sent from God in order to redeem his people. The first indication of this promise is way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, wherein after Adam and Eve sinned against God, they disobeyed him, rather than destroying them, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the first proclamation of the gospel, or the covenant of grace, and it's a, it's a promise in seed form. It's very, very vague, right? It's just God indicating that I am going to send someone who is going to destroy Satan and is ultimately going to redeem you from your sins. How that person would do that doesn't say yet in Genesis 3.15. But the rest of the Old Testament is an unfolding of that promise as more and more information is given by God. More prophecies are given about this one whom he would send to accomplish the redemption of his people, to save them from their sins. When we think about Jesus and, and how he is spoken about in the Old Testament, you know, the most helpful way of thinking about it is to uh, remember the mediatorial offices that we find in the Old Testament, uh, specifically the offices of prophets, priests, and kings. Now, uh, when we look in the Old Testament, we see how God appointed a prophets, priests, and kings in Israel in order to mediate between him and his people. Israel's prophets, priests, and kings were go-betweens or intermediaries between God and the people. And so when we think about prophets, we know that prophets spoke from God. They spoke from God to the people. Think about Moses, as he often addressing Israel said, thus says the Lord. The prophets brought the word down to the people. Think about priests. We know that priests spoke from the people up to God. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They interceded in prayer for the people. And we might say they then brought worship up to God. The prophets brought the word down to the people. The priests lifted the worship up to God on behalf of the people. And then the kings of Israel ruled in God's name, under God's authority, as they were called by God to do so. Think of Saul, David, and and Solomon. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, God promised that he would send a Messiah who would perfectly fulfill these offices. Uh, This is what Philip meant when he told Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, Philip was saying, you know the one that has been prophesied and spoken about throughout the scriptures. He's here. We've, we've found him. And I want us to look briefly at, at where the Old Testament speaks about the one who would fulfill these offices. We consider first the office of prophet. You know that Moses is speaking to the second generation. If you recall in Deuteronomy, Moses knows that he is not going to be able to enter into the promised land with the people and so he promises them that though he will no longer be with them in the promised land as they enter in, nonetheless, God would not leave them without his word. 
God would send them a prophet to preach to them, to instruct them, to guide them. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And God sent prophets to Israel throughout the centuries, especially we know we're reading now and studying the minor prophets in our adult Sunday school class. But Moses here is not speaking just in general about prophets, but he's speaking also about a certain prophet whom God would send to speak the word to his people. And and that prophet was the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he fully revealed to us when he began his ministry and began his teaching the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. In John chapter 12, verse 50, he says, I say only what the Father has told me to say. In fact, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we know he not only spoke God's word, but he was God's word incarnate, as we noted from the prologue of John's gospel. So the Lord Jesus was our perfect prophet. This was foretold in the Old Testament. This is what Philip was so excited about. He's also our perfect priest. And when we think about the priests of the Old Testament, we know that, again, they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They offered animals without blemish, according to what God had instructed in his word. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came and began his ministry, he, he offered not animals in the place of the sins of his people, but he offered himself. He was the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He was our substitute. He died in our place. And this was foretold by Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 5, listen to how Isaiah speaks of one who would die in the place of sinners. He was pierced, we read, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God would send a priest who would make that full and final atonement. He would die in the place of sinners And the Lord would lay upon this one the iniquity, the sin of all of his people. And so Jesus is our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, as is foretold in the Old Testament. But he's also our perfect king. When we think about kings, especially the kings in the Old Testament, we know that there were good kings who were righteous, who tried to live before the face of God, tried to honor God and to rule uh, uh, rightly, but there were also many wicked kings in the, in the Old Testament. And so God promised his people that he would send one who would rule righteously on his behalf. We read this promise in Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning of verse 12, in what is known as the Davidic covenant. We read that God made a covenant with David saying, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish 
the throne of his kingdom forever. David, I am going to send a king, a king like Israel has never seen, a king wiser than Solomon, a king greater than David. We know, loved ones, that this promise was fulfilled in Christ, Christ who was from David's line. Christ is our perfect king. He rules and reigns in righteousness. We can trust that he will never lead us astray, that he will never fail to sovereignly care for us and to rule and reign us and, and uh, over his church. And so you can imagine as, as these things are on, on Philip's heart and mind, he goes and he joyfully tells Nathaniel, we have found him, this one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. We found him. And, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, this is how people were identified in that time. Right? The name first of the village usually that they were from, of Nazareth, and, and then the name of the person's father, Joseph. We think especially about the name of Jesus. It was a very common name. So the fact that Philip explains, well, this is exactly which Jesus we're speaking of. He's from Nazareth, and he's the son of Joseph. Now, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but we need to understand that around Galilee, as he grew up, uh, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is where we see our second point this morning, uh, the prejudice of, of Nathan of Nathaniel. As he says in verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Now by prejudice I mean the fact that Nathaniel had uh, a preconceived idea of where he believed the Messiah would come from. And his idea wasn't based on actual fact. Um, but he says you know, to Philip, you're telling me that the Messiah, the one sent from God, is from Nazareth? Can you, he says, can anything good come from a Nazareth? Now, what was wrong with Nazareth? Well, it wasn't a wicked place. It wasn't a bad place. It was a nothing place. It was a dinky little town. And, you know, this was not a place where people in the first century expected the Messiah to hail from. This was not a place of note or significance or uh, seemed to be a place that was going to give birth to a famous uh, person, someone who would lead his people and, and redeem his people. And, loved ones, as we think about this fact, uh, you know, it, it truly reveals God's way, doesn't it? And God uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world, as we've noted uh, so far in the Gospel of John. He uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world to show his power, his glory, and his wisdom. And it also, as we think about the way that Jesus was known as from Nazareth, son of Joseph, uh, it reveals Jesus' willing humility. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, about his willing humility. He says, uh, we read, the Apostle Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that word grasped in verse 6 means to use one's status for selfish reasons, to use one's status for a personal advantage. You might think of a rich man who uses his status and his wealth you know, to perhaps avoid being drafted in the military or to avoid uh, fighting in a war. And we see here instead that Jesus, the loving, selfless attitude that Jesus showed, he did not use his status, his status as the second person of the Trinity to excuse himself from humble service to his people. But we see instead that he willingly emptied himself. He made himself of no account, of a humble reputation. And he did so willingly by veiling himself in flesh in the incarnation. The one who was truly God became also truly man, fully God and, and fully man. Westminster Larger Catechism explains it this way in question 48. And, by asking, how did Christ humble himself in this life? The answer is, uh, Christ humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, the temptations of Satan, and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying his low condition. This is the depths of his willing humiliation. And even Nathaniel was surprised by it. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Surely not the Messiah. Messiah needs to come from royalty, from a place of status. You see that Jesus throughout his life instead took the role of the servant for his people. This is where we see Philip's answer said, if you don't believe me, come and see. Come and meet him. And then third uh, point for this morning in the sermon is the proof that Jesus shows to Nathanael. In verse 47, Jesus, we read, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus immediately understands Nathaniel's character. He sees it right through him. He's a man of integrity, he says, and honesty. This was probably a contrasting Nathaniel with Jacob in the Old Testament. Right? We know that uh, Jacob was the one who was the deceiver. He deceived his father and his brother into getting the blessing. And then we know that after Jacob wrestled with God, what did God do? God changed his name to Israel. Changed his name because his character had been transformed. He was no longer Jacob the deceiver, but he would now be known as the one who wrestles with God. He would be known as Israel. And so when Jesus referred to Nathanael as an Israelite, he was perhaps saying that this man is not like Jacob. He is a man in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this is what we see in verse 48 prompted Nathanael to ask, 
How do you know me? It's clear that Jesus' words struck a chord with Nathaniel. You know, if a stranger said something like this to you today, you might ask him, you know, did you hack my email account? How, how do you know these things about me? How do you see right through me? And Jesus responded, you see, by showing his supernatural knowledge about Nathanael. Before Philip called you, Nathanael, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So what is Jesus referring to here? What was it about seeing him under the fig tree? Well, many people speculate about this. Was it a time of special communion with God that Nathanael was having under a fig tree? From passages such as uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10, we know that fig trees became uh, symbols of ease and rest and prosperity. And so Jesus is pointing to a specific moment in Nathanael's life, a moment in which Nathanael thought he was alone and, and no one was, uh, was seeing him. And Jesus said, I saw you, Nathanael. Whatever it was, there's something in this exchange between Jesus and Nathanael that signifies to Nathanael that this is no ordinary man. It's what we will find later in chapter 2, verse 24 of John, where Jesus says, and we read uh, that he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people, and he needed uh, no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man and speaking about the ways that Jesus could look into the human heart and understand the human heart because he was the Son of God. See, there's something here about Jesus' reply with the fig tree and, and identifying Nathanael as the Israelite in whom there is no guile, that Nathanael can just tell, this guy is seeing right through me. This man, this wonderful person, knows things about me that no one else knows. So Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What a wonderful profession of faith. What was Jesus' reply? says, Nathanael, you think it's amazing that I knew about you and the fig tree? Well, he says, in essence, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? He says in verse 15, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Is that why you believe? You'll be swayed by such a small thing to believe and trust in me as the Messiah? He says, you will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referencing here Genesis chapter 28, which is in line with what he'd said earlier about Jacob's character from Genesis chapter 27, if you recall. Here in Genesis 28, the reference is to Jacob's dream, wherein Jesus, uh, Jacob saw a ladder from earth to heaven, either a ladder or perhaps a ziggurat, uh, like a stepped type of pyramid, something uh, similarly uh, built. Uh, the Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat as well. Children, you might remember from one of our VBS years that we learned about the Tower of Babel and the way that it looked, and we also had 
one up here. So you can think about something like that. That was part of Jacob's uh, dream. And, and Jacob, in that dream, he saw angels ascending and descending. And when he woke up, what was Jacob's reply? Surely God is in this place. So he called the place Bethel. Beth meaning the word for house and El being short for Elohim, for God. He says, this is the house of God. And so Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I believe that Jesus is speaking here about his entire life of ministry. He's saying, Nathaniel, when you come follow me, you will see greater things than these. You will see my glory displayed in one event after another. Not just one thing that I'm pointing out to you here about you know, what you were doing under that fig tree. And not just in revealing your own heart, but I will show you my glory. Jesus is pointing out the fact that he, in revealing his glory, will reveal himself to be the conduit between heaven and earth. When Jacob saw the ladder in his dream, that ladder was connecting heaven and earth. And so there was this communion or communication between what we might call the invisible and the visible. That ladder was joining heaven and earth. And Jesus now says that you're no longer going to need a Jacob's ladder, this ziggurats. I will be the one to connect heaven and earth. You know, loved ones, that our sin separated us from God. And Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to all who will hear his call that the way that we can be joined to God, that we can have the hope of eternal life, is by uniting ourselves to him, to him who has united us to the Father. There is no longer a separation between us and glory when we come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. He has opened the heavens to us, loved ones. They are no longer closed when we come to God through Christ by faith. Sometimes when we think about heaven, it might seem like a distant place or an unreachable place. Loved ones, in Jesus Christ, it is a place that we have the hope of entering with surety. And we should have it with complete assurance because we are entering through the one who has entered there himself through his ascension. I want to conclude with Heidelberg Catechism 49, which speaks about Jesus' ascension into heaven. And asking the question, how does Christ's ascension into heaven? How does his work on our behalf? And then, is being seated now in glory. How does that benefit us? It says, first, it's because he's our advocate in heaven before his Father. He's there for us, and we can have the sure hope that he is praying for us before the Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. That he is there, and we will soon be with him. And third, he sends us his spirit now, this moment, as a counterpledge by whose power 
We seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that uh, you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear your saving word. We thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who came in the fullness of time to uh, bear our sins and to open the heavens to us so that we might have the hope of eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that... uh, This present evil age is not our only hope, but we can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with Christ in glory. We pray that as we live here in this life, that you would cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness, diligently following your commandments. And may it please you to use us to lead those who are lost, wandering and confused into the way of truth. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.